Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Ready? Yep. Let's go. Let's laugh. We are imperfect after all. Okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Imperfect Us podcast. I'm Leanne Camilleri. And I'm Lisa Downs. As hosts of the Imperfect Us podcast, we share relatable stories that celebrate we are all perfectly imperfect humans leading perfectly imperfect lives. We discover practical and evidence-based strategies that draw on the science of well-being and positive psychology that help us to uncover the barriers that might hold us back from being our authentic selves and turn them into opportunities so that we can show up more consistently doing what we really aspire to do and who we want to be. We acknowledge the Wadarung and the Ghana people as traditional custodians of the beautiful lands on which this podcast is being recorded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend this respect to other First Nations people who are here with us today. So let's get started. Dr Tom Brunzel is the Director of Education at Berry Street and Honorary Fellow at the University of Melbourne Graduate School of Education. He presents internationally on topics including transforming school culture, student engagement, trauma-aware practice, well-being and positive psychology, and effective school leadership. Tom is the co-author of Creating Trauma-Informed Strengths-Based Classrooms. His research at the University of Melbourne investigates both the negative impacts of secondary traumatic stress and the positive impacts of well-being on teachers and leaders working towards educational equity in their communities. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Leanne and Lisa. It's great to be here. Tom, we would love to hear about what led you to the important work that you do. Sure thing. So I was a teacher a long, long time ago in New York City. Uh, specifically, I started as a primary teacher in the Bronx, and then I became a high school person in Harlem. And through that journey, I became a leader. And one of my roles was what we would now call leader of well-being, although we did not have a name for it way back then. <laughs> uh, which shows the advancement, I think, of our practice across yeah. the world. Uh, but one of my very fateful moments is one day I had the real privilege of my life to meet a fellow named Marty Seligman, who was really interested in working with New York City schools. And he and his team at the University of Pennsylvania had not started that yet. And so when my boss came over to me and said, would you be interested in maybe working with this Fella and their team, I pulled out Marty's book, The Optimistic Child, from my book bag that I had like highlighted and dog-eared and said, you mean this person? Yes. And thus began a journey to integrate what we originally just called Marty stuff because we didn't really have a name for it then. And uh, it was really being prepared to be at the sort of intersection of this arising sciences of well-being and what it could mean for classrooms in a pretty robust way. And so we started. And all those years ago, we realized that implementation across a network of our schools required a number of moving factors. And even at the very beginning, we knew that it wasn't good enough just to think about one school, that it was important for all of our campuses. 
that led a sort of journey into what has become, I think, uh, this notion of well-being and well-being interventions and whole school approaches to this stuff. And then one fateful day, a group of Victorians came to visit the school that I was co-leading in Harlem. And they said, we're from Berry Street and we are holding on to something. And I said, oh, what is that? They said, oh, we're working with a bunch of neuroscientists and other practitioners to develop what has now become trauma-informed practice. And I had never heard those words before. I mean, this was almost 20 years ago. And I just became a bit of a super fan of what Barry Street was doing. And one thing led to another, and I ended up becoming a Victorian myself. So I've lived down here in Melbourne for over a decade now, and uh, through that decade. And this is how I think we met uh, through the University of Melbourne uh, Graduate School of Education. Um, I finished my PhD with my friends and mentors and heroes out there, Professor Lee Waters and Professor Helen Stokes. And so I'm well associated with MGSE and, of course, our MAP friends out there who might be listening. Oh, what an amazing story, too, because uh, I know, you know, way back before the 2010 period, when Martin Seligman's work was sort of becoming a little bit more global, but to actually for yourself be in that space with this hero that you knew, to have that connection to explore what is what where you're at now is incredible. My goodness. Well, you I know what, Lisa? How amazing that is. <laughs> I'll make I'll, I'll make you who I oh I met no Leanne and you know you know you just know the research so well and you know the history of our field and when I say our field I mean I'm saying you know this idea of positive psychology positive education allied sciences around that um, that uh, I along with some friends from a long time ago we were at what became the first positive education conference and when I think back to those moments I mean talk about sort of the foundational titans of what we've all built upon their legacies now this you know the people at that original conference in new jersey were uh mahali chiksenmihai angela duckworth chris peterson and all of these people arrived not knowing what the conference was really about and they were all sort of we were all sort of participating in set conversation and seminars like what is the hope for our young people? What is it possible to do in schools? And uh, I did have the opportunity to meet friends like Justin Robinson and uh, Charlie Scudmore at that uh, meeting a long time ago when I had no intention of ever, ever crossing an ocean and becoming an Australian. <laughs> Thank goodness, goodness you did. <laughs> you know, Tom, uh, something you might not remember is, uh, and way before I ever thought I would be working in the education space, I had a student mentoring session with you, a group student mentoring oh, session yeah. at IPA in um, oh. in Montreal. Just hearing your story back then was so impressive. Now I've had a taste of education and understand the context a whole lot differently I so appreciate the work that you're doing but but also understanding how the, the science is applied to the whole picture is amazing I really appreciate that Leanne you know in my early career as a teacher 
I thought, you know, as one sort of predicting into the future where one's <laughs> professional journey may go, I thought that I would become a hyperactivity expert. And in some ways I've become that in contributing <laughs> to thinking around that. But I, you know, I supported so many of my own students who were often diagnosed or undiagnosed as these kids can't stop moving. What is going on with them? And I and certainly we're not going to talk about the um the appropriateness of medicalized therapeutic supports for hyperactivity in this podcast, but I would, I would suggest that I knew somehow intuitively that these students, along with so many students, would benefit from ideas like mindfulness and emotional intelligence and the ability to scan their own bodies and notice their own bodies. But nobody was really talking about those kinds of now what we would call interventions um, that teachers can do, that are appropriate for teachers to do. But I've also seen a number of mindfulness disasters where the teacher really wants to introduce these helpful uh, strategies for self-regulation, et cetera, and focus. But when a mindfulness disaster occurs, when the teacher's trying something and it doesn't work, I just saw so many teachers around me, including myself on rough days, give up and think, oh, this well-being stuff just doesn't apply to some kids. And I think to answer your first question as well, that really started my own journey as a practitioner and researcher out there, just to say there's got to be a way to translate for hardworking teachers how to adapt these things well for students who do have struggles with movement and hyperactivity. And so that led us to this notion of trauma-informed positive education. It's so, so important. And, you know, and I'm really excited that it's in schools much more than it was, say, 10 years ago. And people are really talking and having conversations together. And I think that's the, the most exciting thing about the work that you've been doing at um, Berry Street in making it a, a teacher inquiry. Because, you know, if you're given a package to say, do this, it doesn't work. As you say, they give up. But by exploring and finding other ways and talking with their colleagues and working out other strategies, their, their wellbeing toolkits are actually growing, which is exciting. Oh, I appreciate that, Lisa. You know, just because I know that so many of our listeners today are pretty familiar with our, you know, with research around well-being and other methodologies, I, I got to slip in. One of my favorite um, ways of working with schools is something we now call appreciative inquiry participatory action research and oh. the the idea of action research is of course the bread and butter of what we learn as educators in our you know formal training but uh the appreciative inquiry lens of course being a strengths-based discovery and action research cycle uh is really helpful to embed and enact just like you're suggesting lisa mm. and it gives a voice doesn't it to all of the i would say the learning community um, so it's the teachers, the parents, the students, everybody is involved in that process and learning together. And, you know, the outcome is just greater. Absolutely. And it has to be embedded in community context. And it, it has to, we have to acknowledge culture. We have to acknowledge the community's strengths. We have to acknowledge that the there are so many of our schools now that are like super diverse neurodiverse international languages spoken that it is clearly not good enough to be an off-the-shelf kind of offering to really be convincing to teachers 
in particular that this is worth doing and it's worth pursuing and it takes time yeah I'm just wondering if you could help our listeners today for those who might not understand um, some of the practices here how does understanding trauma and its impact on students empower educators to create those supportive and inclusive learning environments? So one of the conceptual models of our work, and it's easy to find if you look this up in Google Scholar and all the you know usual places on the interwebs, we name our approach conceptually at Barry Street trauma-informed positive education or trauma-informed strengths-based strategies. And I think it's helpful to consider our work in a developmental lens because you can't skip steps. And so many teachers out there are serving classrooms where there are multiple reading levels, multiple levels of regulation, multiple levels of emotional intelligence, et cetera. So we understand that teachers have to meet the stages where students are in very sort of complicated ways when you're working with groups of people together. So the developmental story of our work starts with our domain of self-regulation within the body itself. That just uh, for our listeners to remember that stress is stored in the body non-verbally. And so many children and young people are telling us that they're having a hard time with their behavior non-verbally. Oh, yes, it can be verbal. And teachers will receive the end of that sometimes. <laughs> but we need teachers to understand whatever's coming out of their mouths is a response, a survival response. But in their bodies, they are dysregulated or escalated, acting out or acting in. So this importance of focusing on the body first is so important because as a teacher, I never learned this in my formal qualifications. And I think that so much of, well, maybe I don't want to speak for you, but you know, so much of our work in, is, is a, a karmic contribution to our past. And I just am trying to provide things to teachers that I wish I'd had. But this notion of self-regulation and that adults can co-regulate and build attunement with their students. This helps us understand the causes of why some of the behaviors we see are alarming or unsafe or you know, concerning. And so this focus on self-regulation is the first stop for us. The second then is to build strong relational classrooms. And that stress in the body, stress overload um, and trauma's impacts, both directly experienced and vicariously experienced, that not only impacts one's ability to regulate one's emotional and physical body, but also uh, the strength of our relational attachments. And so I want teachers to understand this kid will not learn if they don't feel safe in your presence. And if they feel that you want them in the room, with your unconditional positive regard, that's when they're gonna take ambitious risks for learning. And so we have a number of strategies for teachers to build relationships and what I'll call micro moments of interaction. And this comes from my experiences specifically as being a high school person for many years. Cause I know like I, I when I was a high school teacher, I did not have 30 kids in my classroom. I had upwards of 90 kids a day. Oh my goodness. Right. Because, you know, just high school land. It's just constantly shifting. But I also know that high school teachers and many specialist teachers, of course, they don't have an extra hour to walk every kid around the yard. They don't have the time to get to know what people think they need to know. But 
Oh, look who I'm talking to. From the sciences of relationship and micro moments of interaction and micro moments of attachment and attunement, we are using that science that's emerged from the well-being land that we all are a part of to prove to teachers you don't need an hour. You need micro moments and you need to make them count. And so for us, that building relationship has to do with relational classroom management. It's how you tell kids how you want them to learn, how to set up the class for success, transitions through the hallways. All of those I want people to reframe in schools as relational moments. And that I think is a little more patience and compassion for us because it gives us the space to say, I just need a second, but I need to make it count. Now, based on the firm foundation of the regulated classroom and the relational classroom, then we move to what I know um, Barb Fredrickson has helpfully named increasing our psychological resources for well-being. As a teacher, that's code word for me, that this is the good stuff. This is what's right with you. This is your strengths, your resilient mindset, understanding when you have been hooked by a mind hook and what can you do to proactively seek support. And this is often where teachers will say, ah, I am introducing mindfulness over time on a strong foundation of regulation and relationship that the well-being strategies can take root. And of course, we are after an inclusive learning environment uh, for all levels of the classroom. So it's not just the kids with complex unmet needs that benefit, but we are certainly supporting a group, a generation of students that has lived through a pandemic that is experiencing the direct and vicarious impacts of what they're hearing in the news, impacts on families, impacts on communities. And so I think one of the reasons our work has really grown is because so many leaders, school leaders are saying, we want a proactive uh, intervention approach to supporting all of our kids. And thank goodness they are, because I know, and I'm not sure exactly where this term came from. It's been in my repertoire for such a long time now, but talking about invisible luggage, you know, mm -hmm. often we do not know what is going on in a student's life, even a teacher's life, anybody, but knowing and trying to build those relationships to help to understand what is going on makes it so much easier to connect and to really be more useful in how to support those students moving forward. I really appreciate that, Lisa. And I also, I can't, I, I'd like to add what we've learned side by side with our Aboriginal colleagues um, is this notion of cultural safety and cultural load. So we know that particularly important when we're supporting our First Nations families, that this notion of cultural load is often unspoken and it is the result of generational impacts of stress and trauma and intergenerational impacts of experiencing racism and colonization. And so all of this is very much uh, in contribution to this notion of what is a trauma-informed school and what is a culturally safe school. And so I, I mean, that's why I'm on board uh, for the long term here, because this is, I think, the project of our time. And I don't think any of us expected that we would experience what we have in the last five years or however. I, I, I frankly cannot remember anything really before COVID, but that's a thing. But also it's a journey toward healing, I think, for all of us in the community. And 
one of the frequent things I hear from teachers or sometimes leaders is I'm suspecting that kids are no longer who we thought they were. And I'm suspecting that the job that we need to do each day at a school is like way more complex and way more needs to be way more comprehensive. And I always want to start conversations like that by saying, yes, we're right. We have to be convincing to staff members who don't yet realize that they have to wake up to understanding well-being and the power of well-being interventions, whole school approaches to this stuff, and the knowledge that can come from trauma-informed education. Yeah. Well, I've just recently completed the Berry Street Education Model Training and found it powerful. It was so interesting to see the people in the room and interact with the people in the room and hear them connect with the science and some of them perhaps not having that understanding that that we have you know with well-being and those aha moments coming up for them which I think is really amazing and only just recently but one of your one of your staff members Judy Hilton came to a, a school of uh, that I'm involved in and gave a talk and it was incredible to see and hear the the, the feedback around the pathways of possibility that just having this better understanding opened up. Oh, thank you, Leanne. And big shout out to Judy Hilton, our trusted and uh, valued (laughs) colleague at Berry Street over in South Australia. I, my, uh, please forgive. Okay. What I'm about to say is going to sound very neoliberal New York City self of me. So I'm just, (laughs) I'm, I'm forewarning this, but I, I, I see so much of our work at schools as marketing. And I'm going to say very specifically, it's about marketing ideas and marketing this idea that we have to keep learning and we have to keep including new advancements in practice, but also Different people need different messages, and that's why we've created our work at Berry Street in very specific ways. So some people in the room really need the evidence. They need to feel like this is standing on a mountain of evaluation and a mountain of previous previous findings that have been useful and shown useful impacts on students. So yes, that's an important group of people. We also have people who are in the room who need to feel the values set that we've been talking about, values toward equity, values toward inclusion, values toward strengths and diversity. And I want to make sure that the values and the meaning of this work is always front and center because some people start with the research and realize, oh, I am contributing toward equity through this way of working for students. And then some people just need to feel great in learning. And we know this, that you you remember things when you like how you feel when you learn them. And so we're always striving. And I hope you felt this, Leanne, that we want, we're teaching people to teach the way we want you to teach. But also, we just want you to feel great in the training and primed through the kinds of activities we want teachers to do with students. Yeah, I think also feeling it for yourself validates the experience that the student will have. Can I add into that for two seconds? Um, Tom, I I just wonder if it is the same sort of thing. So for myself, I haven't um, officially done the full training for Berry Street, but I've read the book, have worked with one of my colleagues who has been trained and um, supporting one particular student, but all of the students, um, 
in using the strategies that you have in your program and it's phenomenal. But one thing I've found that has changed dramatically for me is the alignment to my own values. And when I'm teaching now, there is such a much more authentic self when I'm working with those kids. And that's, that has been a really big surprise because I thought that I was actually a fantastic teacher anyway that builds really great relationships, but it's turned it a whole round higher. Um, actually showing my hands as if I'm in a radio or something, turning the volume up. But it, it was incredible to actually see and to understand and be aware of that of myself. And I think that's a real credit to the whole team um, of Ferry Street and everybody who's founded that. So my appreciation, but also just wanted to share that insight. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I got to add on to that. Our own work at Barry Street, and we have our own independent campus for high schoolers who have been excluded from their own uh, schools, as it were. We know that our students, often living in out-of-home care arrangements, who have very complex unmet needs and behaviors are really alarming sometimes at schools, those kids are nonverbal avatars. <laughs> They are scanning rooms. They are absolutely aware of the kinds of sensory inputs and information that, you know, a lot of teachers are not humming at their level yet. And we understand that for a lot of those kids, that's a strength. That's a survival strategy. That's the mobilization of their resources to just keep going. And as a nonverbal avatar, they are looking at the teacher in front of them saying, I know if you're here for me, or I know if you're not here for me. Yeah. And that is what they're needing to do in their lives each day. Um, and so this journey toward authenticity, it's a big fish, right? It's a big deal to say to a teacher, oh, welcome to this professional learning session. Um, we would like to give you a path of personal refinement. And I know that that's not something that we start with because in my own research, um, you know, a lot of the teachers that I've um, included in my studies, they initially will say things like, I am not here to learn things for myself. I'm just here for the students. And they are, they truly are. Mm -hmm. But to be convincing to teachers that this is something that you have to live for yourself, which has been, I mean, a well, well uh, megaphone message out there since we've all been working together out there. Like yeah. you can't just tell somebody to be resilient if you are not really activating these strategies that we know are working for people for ourselves. I just want to push the pressure on that to say, you know, when the students themselves are just really kindly, um, finely honed on really looking for connection or really looking for someone to hold them steady in times of speed bumps in the classroom, it's even more important, I think, for our staff members to really understand this is not just professional refinement, but it's personal refinement as well. Yeah, totally agree. And I've seen that in practice where... Um, people haven't got that skill yet and so they approach in a very different way and then I might pop in and support and all of a sudden changes the lens completely to what that those unmet needs are for that little person but you have to be curious and you have to be able to understand and really get to know those people and what better way to do that than build those relationships early and, and you continue. have to be patient with yourself <laughs> yes. and everybody because <laughs> You know, back to my mindfulness example, um, it would actually be really naive of us to mm -hmm. say, 
oh, I started this mindfulness thing in term one and they're not really doing it. And it's now only week 11, but this doesn't work. And we're like realizing, wow, this, some of these kiddos have been dysregulated for a really long time in their lives. So we need to not give up. We need to have those routines in place. So they're, they're there when the students are ready to participate. And often with those little strategies that we build along the way, you don't realize how much you you call on them you know in that moment of dysregulation for example you know that that simple taking a breath can can provide a a great shift and although they might not be aware that it's making a difference it really is making a difference it sure is and it's about providing so many of these regulatory strategies, opportunities for students to create their own, opportunities for students to understand what is a fidget tool? How does that keep me moving and learning at the same time? How do I use this helpfully in the classroom as opposed to unhelpfully in the classroom? All of these things can be seen as self-regulatory routines or relational interactions. They are. All of these things have to be considered as classroom routines and systems across campuses, and they are. But again, I also want to make sure that we are inclusive in this idea that we're building strengths in kids. And so many of these kids, they all arrive at places like the Berry Street School in year seven. And imagine being in your first year of high school. And of course, we ask our students, just like a lot of listeners do, what are your strengths? What are you bringing to our school? And a lot of our students have never had that conversation in a structured or responsible way with adults who are really focused on that. And they'll say, I don't have any strengths. That's why I'm at this dumb school. And I just, it's a very, it's a very serious moment. Um, and dare I say, it's an existential moment. I mean, I can't imagine what it might feel like because I did not live my childhood this way of being on this planet for 12 years, 13 years, and never know what's strong about you and never know what's right about you. And then we can see why some students do not have that foundational um, understanding about themselves to be able to goal set and attain great things for learning mm. each day. Mm. Yeah, mm. absolutely. But one thing I'd like to say is, uh, and I think I read it in your research, was you can't support without having that lived experience. And I and I think, and, and what I mean by that is if I have the understanding of, of well-being, that lived experience of well-being and using those strategies and feeling how it feels for me to use them, then I can support students in, in their strategies as well. I, I'm interested to know how does... A trauma-informed approach help educators recognize and respond to the diverse range of trauma and adversity that students might face. The first and most important thing is to remember that there are direct biological impacts on child development when it comes to body regulation, stress regulation, stress chemical regulation, like cortisol and adrenaline. And we, I'm so proud of to be part of Barry Street because we hold one of our country's largest family violence support teams 
and infant mental health teams. And this is probably the most serious thing that we'll talk about um, in our time together, that we are certainly serving infants who have been dysregulated since in utero because of the really alarming rates of family violence um, in our country. And so these direct biological impacts specific to school are very, make it very difficult for a student to play well with others, to follow directions. And I often think of teaching nowadays, as we do this pretty, uh, pretty expansively, that teaching is stress. Learning is stress. Both the teacher and the student are stressed at times in the classroom. And guess what? That's a good thing. In fact, you do not learn if you are not optimally aroused in your stress response for that new learning, your prime for that new learning. Because if it's too easy, people fall asleep. If it's too hard, people go <laughs> get very escalated and uh, do things that they wish they had not done. So to help teachers understand that if teaching is to hold someone in that window of stress tolerance, and we're teaching students who may have had a lower baseline for stress regulation, and they've had that lower baseline for a really, really, really long time, then we need to understand that every behavior is helping a student meet an unmet need. And sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's unhelpful. And I just am trying to embed a couple of helpful hints for our friends out there. I don't like saying right and wrong sometimes because it's, I don't want a student to ruminate or catastrophize that I'm thinking the wrong thing or my body's doing the wrong thing. I like it to sound like helpful, unhelpful, because it's the same thing that high-flying students and performers and stage actors and athletes are doing. They're they're channeling that stress. They're priming themselves. They know what's about to happen. And that's what high-flying students are doing as well. So when we really strive to help students meet their own needs in healthy ways, it's about you know, Maslow's and other developmental hierarchies around you have to feel needs for safety in your own body first. You have to even notice your own body as it's escalating in times where you don't have the answer and you do not want to hear that fix-it feedback from the teacher. Uh, we understand if you can't meet your body's needs for safety, then you're not going to be able to manage your emotional life or your emotional regulation in helpful ways because your body feels like it's constantly betraying your emotional and your thinking intent and your thinking and learning intent. And of course, we have needs for culture and connection and nonverbal needs as well. So I'd like to think of our notion of trauma-informed positive education or just this cluster of evidence-based and evidence-informed ideas that it's a holistic way of thinking about kids. And going back to our prior uh, topic, this holism that we're striving for, I think really helps some teachers understand that unless we meet the whole child in everyday ways in the classroom, we'll see some unhelpful behaviors. And so it's the long game, but uh, that's why we're doing this. Hmm. So true. It is so, so true and so important. Uh, and I see the reflection in the students who have some challenges with their dysregulation and once you're supporting them, they just, you can tell, it's almost like they don't say it, but they just, their whole body tells you, thank you. Just thank totally. you. 
totally well it's it, it's just this exhale moment when they're just saying I, I i'm okay and you know i used to like look at kids and say you're okay however as part of my own sort of karma that i'm trying to correct <laughs> so other teachers new to our profession don't make the same mistakes i did i used to yell at those kids and i used to I used to call some of those kids like you're lying to me when I'd say, um, who spilled the glue? And this kid had glue all over themselves and said, I didn't do it. And I'd be like, oh, no, you're lying to me. But I realize now in my more mature self that that kid was telling the truth, but they were telling their truth and they were telling the truth of their intention because no kid wants to be embarrassed in front of their friends. No kid wants to be to to make a choice that calls really unnecessary attention to themselves. Uh, and so it's building that understanding is so important. And we do that through our developmental approach. Yeah, it reduces that um, shame as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You flip the conversation. Love that. Oh, my goodness. I could talk to you forever. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm just wondering, are you able to share some examples of how that trauma-informed practice has really positively impacted student wellbeing and the academic success? Sure thing. We're always in the middle of research and evaluation. I'm excited to share this story from Monterey Secondary down in Frankston North. And if you are in Victoria, you know that Frankston North is a community that contends with intergenerational inequity and a community deserving of our community supports. Um, so this is a hard work in school that had worked for over three years to embed our strategies. And it, part of our strategies are building self-regulation plans, making sure all students know this is the coolest, fairest school ever. We will always give you a chance to self-regulate, but you've got to elect one of the strategies. And so for kids that are racing, again, from zero to 100 in two seconds, their thinking is not sometimes conscious enough to just take a moment and take a breath and choose something to de-escalate and self-regulate and then get back on task. So in the case study that you can find on our website, and this is useful for a lot of principals to share with their staff, the assistant principal Brian shares that this kid who I think was in eighth grade every day for two whole terms, every time this kid did not get what he wants, he'd stomp out of the room. And one day the teacher sounded like a broken record. Do you want to use one of your strategy? Do you want to, do you want to use one of your strategies? And finally, one day he said, fine, I'll use one of my strategies. And he walked out into the hallway, got a drink of water. The principal, Peter Langham, walked down the hallway and said, what are you doing? And this kid said, I'm using one of my strategies. And the staff was like, oh my gosh, great. And then this kid said, are you going to call my mom like you always do? And the principal said, no, you use one of your strategies. We'll probably text a great message home. And this kid Aww. looked up at the principal and said, I've wasted my entire year. <laughs> but on, I know that this hardworking staff said, no, you didn't. You needed to grow up and you needed to realize that we were always ready to help you. And that is, I think, such an inspirational Aww. story to remind people mm. You can't expect quick change for somebody who doesn't know what well-being feels like and doesn't know what safety in a classroom community feels like. And you can't give up on this stuff. Oh, how, how powerful for that young person. Yes. 
because the whole i mean i i'm writing a thing I, i'm gonna i'm gonna call it or it's, there's something i mean i want to share this with your your audience well i think what we're after is a self-intervention mindset we are after mm -hmm. this idea that students we're not trying to change you we're trying to provide strategies for you and we want you to be the person who you want to be and are meant to be and that's acknowledging your strengths and acknowledging again what's right with you but it all of these beliefs take time and the trust takes time as well absolutely, absolutely. so transformative <sighs> i just really love that oh we're coming towards the end <laughs> of our time together i i could just talk about this for so much longer besides your own fantastic work of course we're going to be sharing that in in the show notes for you know everyone but is there a book a podcast a ted talk that that you would recommend to our listeners today i sure would because i um I will admit I'm not great at media consumption and I have a quick, quick attention span like a lot of us do. And so I like podcasts that are short and sharp and helpful. And so I am very excited to recommend one of my heroes and valued mentors from back in New York City. Professor Angela Duckworth has oh, yeah. an awesome podcast called No Stupid Questions. And I feel like each episode is like no more than 15 minutes. And she takes on a great question that we all have, just everyday topics that we wonder about. Uh, I think one of my favorite ones is called Does Reverse Psychology Really Work? And when I saw the title, I was like, oh my goodness, I want to hear what an expert on our field is actually going to do to deconstruct with the highest rigor this popular <laughs> notion of reverse psychology. And of course, she inspires me with her deft ability to integrate research from psychological and well-being sciences, her candor, her humor, her pragmatism. I just can't recommend it enough. So it's an easy listening. Oh, that's a great one. Well, Tom, We'd just like to know, have you got a favorite tip or a well-being strategy that you can draw on that you'd love to share with our audience today? I sure do. However, I don't have the research to back this up yet, but I do have N equals one research, so it works for me. And I know we like saying that a lot in our community. Yes, absolutely. Um, I was having a niggle in my shoulder and I went to the physio in my neighborhood and she was a, she is a lovely person. And I was very mean to her. I was very bossy. And I said, do not tell me to find more work-life balance. Okay. <laughs> she said, she laughed and said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to find more time for yourself. Nobody has that anyway. I am going to ask you to find balance in your work. And I was like, huh? She said, your niggle is because, and I can predict it, it's because you're sitting at your computer all scrunched up in stress. It's because you're driving all hunched up like this. So I'm not asking you to find more time. I'm asking you when you're sitting, sit balanced. When you're standing, stand balanced. Find balance in what you do. And I just think that has just really changed my life. Again, it's, I think there's a lot of self-compassion in that. And there, you know, in a service rationing world where none of us have enough fill in the blank to do what we want to do, it's really useful to think that this is an integrated journey and a, an integrated journey toward our own personal 
professional, dare I say, spiritual refinement, that that balance is both a metaphor and a physical thing. And it's just something simple, but it's not really that simple, of course, in stressful days that kind of leads my body and mind self together. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. We are so, so grateful for the conversation that we've had with you. We have just learned so much more, feel so much richer for, for the conversation. So, so thank you. Thank you, Leanne. We are wondering where is the best place for people to find out more about you and the incredible work that you and your team are doing? Yeah, sure thing. If you're interested in our research and any of our peer-reviewed publications, easy to find on Google Scholar and other academic databases. I'm pretty sure, and I will admit I've done this myself, if you type my name in, you'll find stuff. Uh, but also, uh, I mean, I, I just in general, but please check out Barry Street. And uh, I know the link will be down there, but for people yeah. driving, it's just... Uh, barrystreet.org.au and you'll learn about our wraparound support approach not just our education approach but for those of you in allied service fields of social work therapeutics family support case management and all of the other things we've talked about we would love people to check out what we're doing out there Oh, they will. I love that you um, are so honest to say that you Googled yourself to find out. I love that. I mean, I'm going to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go and do it myself and see what happens. I'm not sure if I'm going to like it. Let's see. <laughs> Thank you again so much for such a rich conversation about how to support our people and our teachers and our communities. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Leanne, how, are we just not blown away all the time by the generosity of our um, guests? One of the things that I think was really wonderful is that whole notion of what they're trying to create about having that self about who they are, but having the mindset to continually keep thinking that way so that they can discover who they are, but also who they want to be and have been surrounded by people who are wanting to champion them. Like he mentioned in um, that case study where the man said, We've always been here for you to help you. That mm. message that we are a learning community and we'll always be here for you, but you also need to be able to find the strategies that are going to help for you on your own, what did they call it, a self-regulation plan. I thought mm. that was just spectacular. Yeah, trauma-informed practices help us to have some strategies for, for the challenges that we have. These approaches are not just for the kids. No, and he made that really clear about stress is part of that those trauma responses as well. But teachers have stress, parents have stress, students have stress. We, stress is there. Stress can show up as a, a negative, but it can also be used as a learning opportunity as well. And I think that was a really important um, thing to be talking about. But like Tom said, we have to keep learning uh, and, and that different people need different evidence to support that and I think that's something important to remember and this gives us a way to explore that. Absolutely. I tell you what, there was just one other little thing I thought was really interesting for all of us to be mm. mindful of and mindfully aware when he talked about that some of the students will have that non-verbal avatar he called them and I yes. thought that is good. If they're not showing, if they're showing you whether it's any type of 
language, the body language, if it's not the verbal language, they can be little stealth avatars going around, but they're still showing you and telling you in a very different way that they need, there's some unmet needs that need to be addressed and how can you support them. And thank you for listening to the Imperfect Us podcast. As always, we are extremely grateful to our executive producer, Brenton Ainsworth, for helping us to put this episode together. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone you care about, and we would be grateful if you could rate this podcast on iTunes. To continue the conversation and see what we're up to, you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Imperfect Us. Bye for now.